The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, joined, as always, by my colleague and my partner in crime, Tim Foster. Good morning, Tim. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thanks, Rich. We're also joined today by California Assembly Speaker Emeritus Anthony Rendon, who served seven years in that role before the transition last summer to current Speaker Robert Rivas. Uh, Speaker Rendon turns out this year, so we thought it'd be a good time to have a chat with him about what he hopes to accomplish during this last year in office, uh, including a really interesting new bill that he has introduced on homelessness prevention as well as any other thoughts he has on his time in the California legislature. And I imagine he has a few. Uh, speaker, welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. How are you doing today? Thanks. Hey, guys. I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks. Well, let's start with the bill that I noted in the intro. And this is really interesting to me because my daughter works in this arena here in Sacramento County. Uh, the bill you introduced is uh, Assembly Bill 1948 which would make permanent a pilot program that uh, I believe started last year that allows a handful of Southern California counties to work together, uh, sharing information and et cetera on homelessness issues. Uh, if you would, please enlighten me a little bit more about the everything to do with this bill. Sure, you kind of you kind of uh, nailed it there in the short summary. And it's it's an important bill, but a, a, I think a, a fairly uh, simple bill. Uh, the bill allows different agencies within the same county, uh, different departments uh, within the same county to share information uh, with one another. There's often those silos that exist between different entities. It's uh, people can opt out if they have privacy concerns and they don't uh, they don't uh, have to participate. But it is it's, it's an extension of a pilot program. I worked in nonprofit social services for about 20 years. I understand both how important information sharing is, uh, but I also understand how different departments can kind of silo, uh, can create silos and, and, and isolate themselves and their services from one another. So it's important. I will tell you both that I did an interview uh, not too long ago where I brought this topic up and I got contacted by a member of a county board of supervisors that's not included uh, uh, in the pilot and asked to be included. So, um, if, if there's anybody listening <laughs> and you're interested, let us know. Well, I, like I say, I'm a little fascinated by it because, you know, I have a somewhat personal stake in this too, because my daughter works in this very area of, you know, coordinating uh, teams that go out into the field to try to coordinate services and get people, hopefully get them off the street. And there are problems with, you know, people that are unhoused, often move around. And, you know, if you've got one county trying to help them and there's, you know, a, a record of something somewhere else and they don't know about it, you're getting duplicative services, et cetera. So it, it's it's actually more of a challenge in dealing with, you know, trying to help the homeless population than it sounds like when you just say, oh, information sharing. So it seems like a pretty important thing. Yeah, very much so. And there's an analogy. You know, I, I uh, used to work in the environmental field, and I remember uh, talking to the city of Los Angeles. And if you can picture Los Angeles City Hall, you know, this, uh, vertical building, I remember going sort of almost floor to floor talking to different department heads about um, about recycling and, and how best to do it. And it was literally the fourth floor had a program that the fifth floor didn't have, and the sixth floor had a different program, and the seventh floor was doing something else. Um, so it's those types of things that I know frustrate people uh, about government and, and you know, why 
No, nobody should be uh, reinventing the wheel here. And particularly, you know, we've seen in places like London, for example, um, how that information sharing is, is so important, both uh, in terms of making sure that the providers have all the information they need uh, about home, the homeless population, but also that the, the homeless population themselves have, has all the information they need. You know, also just curious, I know it was a fairly new program. Do we have data or anything from from you know this part of the project that says, hey, you know, this is really working. We gotta we gotta keep this going. Yeah, absolutely. The program has been successful in those counties uh, that are utilizing it, and we and we want to make sure that uh, you know, a they continue to utilize it. Also, want to make sure that other counties uh, get to use it as well. You know, there's always things sort of mid course corrections and those those types of things that we want to you know, if we continue to to run the program, we get to sort of you know, uh, weed out some of the bad things about the program. And this gives an opportunity to do that as well. And we know we're in a budget problem, <laughs> to say the least, you know, uh, what's the, how's the state budget shortfall going to impact on this? Is there, is there a big cost associated with any of this? No, uh, not, not with this specific program, the costs, uh, if anything, I think this will help to save money and help to cut down a duplication that duplicate, uh, you know, information duplication efforts on the part of counties. Um, so from a state perspective, no, and I think it'll help, uh, to save, uh, the counties, uh, money. You're right. Uh, the state budget crisis is real. Um, and we're going to have to look and see how that affects other aspects of of, of governance, but I don't, I don't think it um, come into play here. Well, and you know, as we were kind of prepping for this, I realized you spent basically your entire term pretty flush. I mean, there was money in, in the in the kitty, so you left at the perfect time for you anyway, uh, as far as, you know, looking at, I don't know, the numbers change all the time from $38 billion to $73 billion, but uh, any thoughts on that? Like, what, any advice you would have for for your uh, successor on what he should be doing, or are you just going to let him figure that out on his own? Well, it was all me for one thing. Uh, you know, all that, all that, uh, all that success and surplus was entirely me. Uh, just kidding. Um, no, it was, uh, I was <laughs> lucky. <laughs> Came along uh, at a time when there was an incredible amount of, uh, of money and we, we were able to invest it. I, I don't have the experience of that, uh, that the speaker and this new pro tem and this, you know, uh, governor are going to deal with it's you're right. I have been, I've lived a very charmed life. If you look at my class, we got here in 2012, we were with people who had the complete opposite experience. My wife who worked in the building as a staffer for, you know, uh, a long time, uh, had that experience too. So we, I hope we, uh, the class of 2012. I hope we remember that that uh, this isn't the way things normally are, and we, you know, I think we need to be appreciative of of all the things that other folks have gone through in the past. Uh, this will be this will be very difficult. Uh, I do. I'm proud of the rainy day fund that we built as a state, and I think that'll be incredibly helpful. I think our rainy day fund is larger than the state budgets of like 33 uh, states, um, but. You know, uh, you you're, you're talking about numbers in excessive, you know, excessive fifty billion dollars that can go right go away right away. You know, you as I noted, you're approaching, you know, your the end of your time in the legislature, um, but you're not, you know, to sound like Monty Python, you're not dead yet. So what what are your other goals and priorities do you have for the time this this year? You know, this time that you have left in the building. 
it's a big focus on the arts. Uh, you know, we're working on a, uh, a, a cultural arts center in, in my district. We've raised about 120 million, have about 50 million left to raise. Um, if you look at a cultural heat map of Los Angeles County, see an incredible amount of arts investment in West LA and downtown Los Angeles in and around USC. When you get to communities of color, uh, black and brown communities in particular, you see none. Um, having uh, an arts facility in the district um, not only would allow so many of the world-class arts institutions uh, to, to share uh, what they do in the district, uh, but it would also allow our incredible group of, of, of local artists to, to have an opportunity to, to show off uh, their works in, in world-class facilities as well. So that's a big part of, of what I'm focused on. Also focused on my chairmanship of the Joint Arts Committee. Uh, that was my one of the last things I did as speaker was to appoint myself, uh, active, uh, complete, uh, you know, lack of ego. Um, made myself the Joint Arts Chair. Um, the my first job uh, out of college was at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. I have always said that my last job uh, out of the art, out of you know, before I. Uh, before I do die, <laughs> will be will be in the arts. Uh, my you know doctoral dissertation was on uh, aesthetic theory in the late twentieth century. So the arts are really important to me. So that joint arts committee, and we're doing a tour, I think, in Fresno uh, this upcoming uh, day after tomorrow, in fact. Um, so I think that's it's really important to me. Also, when uh, when uh, Dana Gioia, who's a good friend, when he was the poet laureate for California, uh, he did poetry readings in in every county in the state, and I thought that was really cool. So for me, this opportunity uh, to chair Joint Arts, you know, we're going to Fresno first. I think it's really important that you know it's everybody knows about the great world class arts institutions that exist in in the major cities in this state, but. The stories, uh, you know, there are stories everywhere and stories need to be told. The, the current Poet Laureate is from Fresno. Um, and I want to make sure that we, uh, I said this before, you draw a straight line from Coachella through the Inland Empire, through the Central Valley, up through Reading. You know, we we need to do a better job at state government of making sure that we're paying attention to the eastern part of California. Um, so uh, my Joint Arts uh, Committee is going to going to emphasize that part of the state. Well, that seems like, I, first of all, I love that. I love it because if you travel around at all, I mean, I, I remember the first time I ever went to Montreal and was just blown away at how much gorgeous public art there yeah. is in cities like that. And, you know, we've seen it so much uh, growth in that area here in Sacramento. And, you know, I think it's just such a, a a great thing for a city to have that level of public art. So I wholly support that. Uh, again, big challenge during tough budget times. I mean, what, you know, do you have a sense of, because that's often one of the first things that get cut, you know, when a bad budget is they, they take away money from the arts. I mean, that sounds like that might be a, a knife fight in the brew. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's historically been the case. It's historically been the case in, in California. It's historically been the case in the U.S. It's historically been the case uh, in the world. If you look at a lot of the great public arts projects, the New Deal Arts pro uh, Program, you think about the Mexican Muralism Program, which was a, a public arts project. 
those were important not only in in terms of sort of creating a, a national identity uh, at a time when that was badly needed, um, but also um, helping to keep people employed. And I think we've done uh, in the arts, I think what we need to do a better job of is talking about the jobs uh, created, the tax dollars uh, produced from the arts. I, think, I don't think we've done a, a very good job of that. And when you talk about a bad economy, um, you know, making sure that artists are employed, making sure that architects are employed, making sure that, you know, artisans are employed is, a, is, is as important as making sure that anybody else is employed. Right? You know, it's interesting you say that. I uh, About 12 years ago, I wrote a report uh, for the city of Sacramento about arts jobs. And it was amazing yeah. how many uh, how many jobs relied on arts. First off, just people either working directly for arts institutions or artists that were getting paid to make their work. But then the extra money that would come in when someone would come to a play and then they would also go to a restaurant or maybe even stay in a hotel. And it was stunning. There was, you know, the, the federal arts, uh, NEA. uh what was, yeah, exactly. They had done a, uh, a massive study and, and done all the numbers and then, you know, it was extrapolated here into Sacramento. And it is amazing how much the arts actually generate for an area. And then, you know, my background is I actually have a degree in art from UC Davis and I'm involved in the Verge Center for the Arts here in Sacramento. Uh, so, you know, something very close to my heart. And you know, I can't, admit, can't let this go without mentioning that I was at uh, memorial service for Phil Eisenberg, uh -huh. uh, Sacramento mayor, former assemblyman, head of the Delta Stewardship Council. And, you know, he and his wife, Marilyn, were incredible. Well, Marilyn still is an incredible art supporter, you know, and, and one of the reasons we have the uh, the public art in Sacramento that we do is because of Phil's uh, creation of a fund. One, I think 1% or 2% yeah. of every building's uh, budget has to go to public art. So, you know, it is really important. People don't realize that they don't think about it, but it's it's much more than just some sort of a luxury for, for other people. It's something that really makes a community. Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I actually didn't know that about Phil. That's good to know. I talked about the Museum of Contemporary Art earlier where I worked. That was built. Um, there were three mat two, two were built. Three were supposed to be built at the California Plaza, these giant office towers. Um, those were so massive that the museum was actually paid for by the 1% from that um from that development so yeah i mean you start to think about the extent to which those programs have an impact on lives and you talked about secondary and and and, and you know tertiary uh impacts of, on the economy but it also has that same i think impact on on people's lives too right i mean i think having you know i remember my freshman year working on the water bond i was reading all these books on politics that i found pretty hopeless. <laughs> it's not very interesting. And I went back to, you know, reading, you know, uh, philosophy of Andy Warhol, A to Z, and, you know, the uh, uh, Rothko's. I remember reading Rothko's writings. Uh, and your mind just starts to work differently, um, you know, I think more creatively. And I would, I, I think, having a, a doctor, having a lawyer, or you think about like, um, if you've ever read the double helix, right, that when Watson and Crick were, were trying to figure out the structure of DNA, and one of them, I don't remember which one, said like, oh, I, th I think it's a helix. And then the other one looked at it, at the picture, and said like, no, it's not beautiful enough. It can't be. And then they went back and did the myth, the, the math again, and they figured out that the structure was the double helix, right? And that was aesthetics informing science, right? It was aesthetics informing uh, a sense of you know, you know, a sense, you know, science. Um, and I think people who are able to think creatively, people who are able to 
think uh, who are able to utilize so many of the skills that are important to the arts are better at everything, uh, better at um, so many other aspects of, of life as well. Speaker, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about your uh, some of the challenges and opportunities and things in the, in the legislature. Um, you know, your time as speaker ended on a sour note for you. Um, thinking back on it now and, and all the challenges that you did face, if, it, if there weren't budget ones, but you did have COVID for sure. You had you were speaker during a time when the Democratic Party gained super majorities, but hardly could be described as a monolith in any way, almost as fractured in a way as if in some ways, as if it's two different parties, mm -hmm. you know, now that you've had a little chance to, to step away from that pressure cooker and think about it, maybe uh, in, in a reflective way, is there anything you would do differently? Is there anything that you absolutely would not do differently? You know, do you, do you what are your thoughts back on that, on that time? I mean, seven years is a long time to be, to be speaker throughout some of these challenges. The longest I've ever had a job. <laughs> <laughs> um, what would I do different? I mean, uh, I'm, I'm the world's greatest, you know, self-doubter and regretter and all of that. So I probably, you know, I wake up one day and I think I do everything differently. I wake up another day, I think I do half of the things differently and everything you do impacts everything else. So it's really hard to say, right? Um, I, I do think we, we often at the beginning of like this time of year, um, you start the year and you have a plan about what you want to do. And you're right. Uh, you're, you're right, Rich. Um, you know, all of a sudden there's COVID and that's a curveball. All of a sudden there's Donald Trump gets elected and that's a curveball. Um, you know, all of a sudden you have loose, you know, a bunch of members from me too. And that's a curveball. So, um, you know, it's hard. It's a job. Again, I worked in the nonprofits. Um, it's same thing. It's a job. They're both jobs where you have a plan and it's hard to kind of follow through with the plan because things happen. Uh, things keep the, you know, the game, the, the field keeps changing. Um, so in terms of things, um, you know, that I would do differently, it's, it's hard to say, uh, we, you know, it's, it's really, it's hard to say. Um, but I mean, I think in, in terms of the seven years and, you know, when I, I think back on it, it's, first of all, it, it's like, it almost seems like something outside of me now, like, you know, somebody else's life. You know? <laughs> um, it's kind of uh, like, you know, some, you know, novel you read in high school, you didn't like very much and you just have vague memories of it. You know, I don't like Jack London. I'm like that, you know, <laughs> call of the wild or something. Um, uh, it, it's a little bit like that. It's a little bit outside of me. Um, it doesn't feel all that real anymore. Um, I think what I'm proud of, I remember my second or third year, uh, as speaker, I remember talking to a guy who'd been working in district offices for, he said, 20 years in the assembly. He said, I, and I don't feel like we really started doing anything until recently. Like, um, you know, I'm part of the National Speakers Conference, part of DLCC, Aspen Institute. All the conversations revolve around like, you know, oh, government's so stagnant. And why don't we do anything? And, you know, how do we move forward? Hey, look, guys, you... If you're a Republican, you may hate the stuff we do in California. If you're a progressive Democrat like me, you might think we don't do enough. But nobody can say we don't do anything in California. And that's what I think I'm most proud of is that is that doing, you know, that that, um, you know, that trying different solutions and actually accomplishing things. Um, 
like everything else, sometimes, you know, we didn't make the progress we wanted to. But there's a real culture now in, in the legislature, a, a real expectation that we're going to do things, that we're going to accomplish things. I remember doing the water bond and sort of like I'd be talking to people and I'd say like, hey, this is real. Like We're going to do this. We're going to get this on the ballot. As a freshman, I didn't know any better. And I think there is that sense of like, of, you know, there was always, I, I think, a sense you know, I like Irish literature a lot, right? Like in, in Waiting for Godot, there's this great scene when I've talked about this before, when the two characters are on stage and one says, let's go. And the other one says, yeah, let's go. And then the stage direction says they do not move. Right. And that's kind of like, it's kind of politics, right? It's like all these great speeches and la la la. And now that I'm, you know, no longer speaker, I, I, I sit on, you know, I sit on the floor and I do a lot of resolutions. <laughs> <laughs> we do like, oh, it's Kate, Kate Safety Month. Hey. Um, you know, that's great. Um, and I, I think we often do in life. I remember John Perez telling me, uh, came into the, I mean, this is a long answer to your question. I apologize. But I remember coming in the, uh, I got in the assembly elevator one morning and, and um, there were all these like, you know, stencils and the elevators. I thought, I went to the speaker's office. I'm like, John, I left. The Capitol last night at like 11, I got back at eight. Like, when do, who put these stencils up? And he said, well, I did with the maintenance crew. And I said, why? And he said, because, you know, in this job, there's so much you can't control uh, that I like to be able to control things. I like to have a sense of accomplishment. Like, I mean, I'm doing this and this is something I can control. And I think that's a big part of human psychology, right? Um, I think I used to get really angry and frustrated at the number of, you know, what I regard as crappy resolutions we did, you know, like, oh, it's, Park make life great month. Yeah, great, fantastic. It's not really why you got elected, right? But I think to a large extent we do those things because you know we haven't made progress on homelessness. We haven't made progress on you know on climate change like we want to. And I think there's this psychology in people of you know uh, let's go, yes, let's go. They do not move, right? And you want to move in ways that you can. Um, so I think I'm a little bit more sympathetic about that now and, and trying to kind of understand the psychology. But, you know, hopefully if there is anything that's changed in the past 10 years since my class got here, is it's an expectation, a sense of doing, a sense of we're going to accomplish things. We're going to send bills to the governor and, you know, she or he may sign it or veto it, but we're going to do stuff. And uh, that's what I'm most proud of. So the flip side of that is that I feel like there are expectations now uh, on the legislature. And and what I'm thinking of specifically is that, you know, a few years ago, a single payer bill was moving through. It got right through the Senate and then it, you know, it went uh, it just got buried in the uh, assembly. And man, the nurses really uh, went after you for that. And there was an expectation that that was ready to go, certainly following it from my perspective, I mean, I was not on the inside. It seemed like there wasn't any money for it at the time and it probably wasn't going to go anywhere. But it, the speed with which it moved through the Senate sure implied that it was going somewhere and then you stopped it dead. And that was a kind of a dramatic moment. Uh, can you talk about that and about sort of, I don't want to call them like showpiece bills, but bills that probably aren't really going to go anywhere, but they they look good. Boy, when you go and you're going back to your district, you can talk about how you voted on it, but it never was probably going to become law at that moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. And and you said, I, I appreciate you saying it, it stopped, it got lost somewhere in the assembly. It got, it got stopped at my desk. I, st I stopped it. 
Um, and it's, you know, honestly, I, there was no difference between, I was talking earlier about, you know, resolutions about, you know, <clears throat> wear your life jacket month, right? There was no difference between that and the single payer bill. Um, you said there was no money. There was no reference to money at all. Zero. Uh, there was no reference. The federal government would have to give California a waiver to do the program. There was no reference to that. Keep in mind, Donald Trump is president of the United States. Is Donald Trump going to give us a waiver to do a, to do a single payer program? There was no reference to Prop 98, which if you change the equation of spending in California, you know, if you take money away from education, you have to go to the voters and they have to undo Prop 98 or change Prop 98. Um, so it was a it, it was a purely symbolic bill, had nothing to do with with having an impact on the lives of, of real people. Um, it was, it was garbage. Um, it had honestly had nothing to do with single payer. Um, so, I mean, that's exactly the type of thing I'm talking about. And I, and I think that's become sort of, you know, this, this, you know, fashion show politics on both the left and the right has become, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I spent 20 years working in the nonprofit sector and gang programs and early childhood education programs. You have to have an impact on people's lives or there's no point in doing what you're doing. And if you're just going to be out there, you know, uh, with symbolism, then I'm bored. I can I can help people. I can find a better job where I can do stuff to help people. And um, and that's that was a good example of that. Well, you know, that's what I was going to reference earlier, because I've talked with enough former lawmakers who have expressed something very similar to, to what you were just saying. And I always ask them the same question that I'm about to ask you, which is, do you find yourself after the, all this experience more cynical about politics in the process, more optimistic, maybe somewhere in between? Did anything change? I mean, you know, again, you hit, you're having a chance. I asked you about reflecting on, on, you know, things you were proud of, but how about just the process in general? You know, is it is it still that you know politics has always been described as the as the uh, art of the possible? But I don't know. Do you do you agree with that? Still, is that is that something that's true? Rich, I always thought that politics was Hollywood for ugly people. <laughs> I always thought politics was uh, sports for people with no physical coordination or skills. Um, <laughs> it's probably it's, all those things. Probably right? all of the above. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, I don't think my views about politics have changed one iota. I mean, I, I, it's a representative democracy, right? Uh, everybody, you know, we got people, uh, from MIT on our floor. We got people, holy crap. You wonder how they can, uh, ever open a, you know, a bottle of ketchup. Um, you know, um, we have everybody in our legislature. We really do. And that's fine. That's, we have a representative democracy in this in this country. That's what we've, the the form we've decided to have, um, and we have just as importantly, we have folks uh, who work in the building, experts on policy, and all of that kind of stuff. And and that is you know indispensable part of of government. You know, I I you know one of the benefits I think you know, I studied philosophy, and you know when you sort of think about things across. Maybe the only thing Jerry Brown and I had in common, you know, when you think about things from the perspective of 23 centuries, you know, um, my feelings on ethics, people's ethics hasn't changed. My my perspective on democracy hasn't changed. My perspective on human nature hasn't changed. 
there are little anecdotes here or there uh, that you learn. Um, but, you know, it's it's the same. Um, it's what's interesting is the perspective. Right. I mean, 20, you know, 20 years working in the nonprofit sector at the granular level um, versus in Sacramento at the 30,000 foot level. I think, you know, uh, going back to the district and and. Working on programs and services, I think I'd, I'd do it differently now. I think I'd probably do uh, a different job and sort of like, you know, uh, inform, uh, I think each informs the other. But in terms of like the way I view the world or view democracy or view politics or any of that, nah, it's it's um, a lot of good people out there trying to do the right thing. A lot of people who wonder why they're doing the job. Right. Well, I'll ask you a, a closing question that I probably know the answer to, but, uh, you know, we're, we're learning, of course, just in the last day or so from when this is being recorded, yet another recall effort against the governor. Any thoughts on uh, on that whole scenario? It's it's crap. Uh, it's, it's, it's frustrating. It's um, divisive. It's a waste of time. It's a desperation. Um, you know, we, we, um, I understand we have aspects of direct democracy in this country and in this state and aspects of representative democracy. I think that's an incredibly abusive, incredibly distracting, um, use of direct democracy. Um, the, the governor has twice been elected in landslides, uh, in general elections and, you know, to utilize this, you know, what is essentially a 19th century device um, to just stall things and create a distraction. And we all know how it's going to end up anyway, same way it ended up last time. It's, it's a waste of everyone's time. It's, you know, great for Twitter and whatever. And that's kind of the way a lot of people in politics seem to live their lives anyway. And, and, you know, the truth is if you're a Republican in Sacramento or, or in California, I mean, you know, it's you're, you're not going to get much done anyway. Right. So it's pretty much about that protest and about being vocal. But it just seems like you could kind of figure out other ways, uh, better ways of, of of using your time. Go, you know, play with your kids or learn to play the tuba or something. <laughs> there, there is the alternate <laughs> path for anybody seeking to do something like this, go learn how to play the tuba. Yes, <laughs> it should be our new state model or something. Wise words of advice on a better way to spend your time. So, well, Assembly Speaker Emeritus uh, Anthony Rendon, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it, and uh, you know, wishing you all the best. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Join Capital Weekly on Thursday, March 21st for A Conference on Crime. With high-profile retail thefts making big news and drug-related deaths climbing, pressure is on elected officials to act in 2024. Three panels of experts will discuss the problems and potential solutions. San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins will deliver the keynote address. Attend in person or by Zoom. To find out more, visit capitalweekly.net slash events. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. You know, when it comes to worst week in California politics, we don't do it too early in the week because often things change. And this is a classic case of one of those because early in the week, it definitely looked like Steve Garvey was going to be the leading candidate for our worst week in California politics because, you know, when you when people that know seem to know you very, very well come out and support your opponent, 
that should tell people a lot of things about you. And, and that's, of course, what happened with Steve Garvey earlier this week when two of his former Los Angeles Dodgers teammates, Dave Stewart and Dusty Baker, both came out and endorsed Barbara Lee in the uh, race for the U.S. Senate. And uh, that normally would have been kind of a bummer. That's a bad look. Of course, he ended up having really not a bad end of the week because according to the latest IGS poll, Berkeley IGS poll, uh, he actually has pulled at least either dead even or maybe even slightly ahead of Adam Schiff uh, in the polling for that race. So maybe that softened the blow enough to to make him the runner-up candidate. But Tim, we have a, a very legit, real worst week in California candidate this week, and I believe he goes by the name of Gavin Newsom. It's true, although earlier in the week as this story developed, I wasn't sure who was going to be. I thought that this story might be the worst week story, but I wasn't sure who would actually be getting, uh, would be the ox getting gored. Wondered if it might be Panera Bread. I wondered if it might be Assembly Member uh, Chris Holden. But ultimately, as this has sort of come out, it sounds like this is not going to be great for Newsom, who's already, we've we've learned in the last uh, few days, is going to be facing a recall of, well, or an attempt to recall and we'll see if it even qualifies for the ballot uh which you know never great on the other hand the flip side of that is if it does qualify for the ballot then it's going to give him unlimited ability to fundraise you know there's no limits on fundraising to fight a recall so he can uh, he can fundraise a ridiculous amount of money which he did last time actually right. uh, so in a in a sense that could almost be a good thing but this panera bread story it's weird it's funny it's like it's Totally like the weird things that happen when you're making the sausage of legislation. Uh, but I think I think Newsom is definitely going to be the one feeling the heat out of this. Well, and we were talking about this off air, you know, the irony. Newsom hasn't really been touched by too much uh, of what looks like scandal or, you know, something along those lines. But uh, the two most prominent, if you count this one, and of course, the other one was the French Laundry incident, which, uh, you know, a lot of observers credit with you know being the driving force behind gathering it all the uh, enough signatures to get uh the first recall on the ballot so will this one be the same well i, I have to tell you who's having the best week in california politics because the the rescue california people you know that that came out with all of the normal stuff they come out with to say when they decide they're going to do this which looked very you know very much like a fool's errand to some extent and then the San Francisco Standard comes out and reports that, yeah, the reality is they're they're a million dollars in debt from the first recall. And this is just a way to raise money to try to clear those debts. And so it looks like a really almost scandalous there. And then this whole thing with Panera Bread breaks out and it looks like, well, did the governor actually do something here that seems a little unseemly? And everybody's running from it, right? The governor's office denies that they had anything to do with this. Chris Holden says, oh, well, I inherited this. It wasn't anything I did. You've got Tia Orr of SEIU saying, hold up. That's not at all what happened. This is, you know, and, and now everybody's struggling to come out and figure out, well, how, how does it get determined what kind of a company will be exempt, if any, should be exempt from this minimum wage law? So just... Just for those, I'm sure most of our listeners will be well familiar with this, but just to get a real backstory very quickly, uh, AB 1228 by by Assemblymember Chris Holden uh, was the state's minimum wage law. It gave a raise 
to the state's minimum wage for uh, employees working at fast food restaurants will bump them up to $20 an hour. Uh, it passed in 2023. Uh, it, a similar bill had gone up in 2022, didn't go uh, through there. Here's the real irony when all this comes up. I find that we're Capital Weekly is right in the middle of it because the Panera guy in question, the, the Newsom donor, Rick Flynn actually wrote an op-ed that we published in Capital Weekly and uh, about why this was such a terrible idea. Uh, and then the bill did change ultimately, and, and I, you know, it did get signed. But anyway, so uh, here we are. I didn't even realize we were in the in the fray. Um, but <laughs> this did get passed, and now everyone says, "Well, why, you know, why is this there? This strange exemption for bread baking uh, in this bill, and no one seems to figure out how it could be there." I have to say. Maybe I'm being a little bit of a Pollyanna here, but I do think it would be weird if the governor's office would be that down in the weeds on uh, legislation. Maybe. I mean, maybe I'm like, maybe I'm totally misreading this, but that seems like it'd be a little weird for them to be down in the weeds, especially on something that would be as obviously able to be teased out as this. Um, but I do wonder why in the world bread, you know, bread. <laughs> Bread making would would uh, exempt you from uh, paying a, a min twenty dollar minimum wage. Flynn on his on his side of this said, "Hey, it really doesn't. You know, we're whether we're exempt or not isn't really going to matter because if every other restaurant is paying a twenty dollar minimum wage. Guess what? We're going to have to pay a twenty dollar minimum wage too. So I don't know. The whole thing is weird. I'm sure Newsom is pulling his hair out, going, "How in the hell did this happen?" Uh, and you know, probably." Uh, I don't know. I don't know who who did the who's responsible, but but it all landed on Newsom. It did all land on Newsom. He's ultimately, you know, the governor. The governor is like a, an NFL quarterback in so many ways. They get way too much credit for victories, and they get way too much uh, blame for bad news or mistakes or defeats. And so, um, but I'm with you. You know, look, it's not unusual for a governor to get deeply involved in legislation, but it's usually something that governor proposed themselves and and got someone to carry for them, right? And we've seen this. You know, we've seen this before with this governor and every governor, every governor exactly, in the yeah. state, right? But to get deeply down in the weeds on a bill that they're that they're not really the one behind, they they you know they're not the main player, and then to do to have done it in a way that, as you noted, could be so easily discerned. And made public and make you look bad. I mean, it can't. It's not that it can't happen. I mean, we've seen polit political people do really dumb things, and hubris is real in this game. It just would seem unlikely in a case like this. But but again, we're not taking a side here. We're just saying uh, it's an odd thing. And at the end of the day, the the person who's who's getting uh, the brunt of uh, the negative stuff out of all this is the governor. So I, I think I think he 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 came uh, from behind and and snatched a victory from the jaws of defeat by by racing past Steve Garvey to win our 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 race, our weekly race for who had the worst week in California politics. You know, and I have to say, I hope everyone out there is listening because next week is going to be very exciting. We you know we got the election coming up. Given the way that we count ballots in California, there's no guarantee that there will really be too many answers about who won what uh, in any of the closer races. But this could be really next week's worst week could be really interesting. We could have a lot of candidates to choose from. 
Yeah, I mean, I already have a few in mind, of course, depending on how how uh, things go on, on uh, March fifth. But uh, we'll we'll save that for another day. We'll keep our powder dry on that one. So, Tim, as always, it's been a lot of fun. We will uh, we will pick this back up very very soon. Thanks, Rich, and we'll talk to you soon. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. <laughs>